Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful you would spend this beautiful Sunday with us. A few items as we begin. First and foremost, you're able to give, uh, if you are led to give, to support the mission of homes. You're able to give online. You can scan the QR code. You can give via text. You can give the old-fashioned way as you exit with cash, check, mail order, whatever, right? Lots of opportunities for you to give, and we encourage you to give, support God's mission. We'll talk more about giving at the end as we talk about the Janie Chapman missions offering that's occurring this week. I want to talk through that and celebrate that this month. Now, as we get started, we are in a new series titled Burning Questions. And the point of this series, as we begin this series, is to really begin to wrestle with some, what I would label hot topic or hot button issues or questions that we might encounter in our Christian faith. One of the things that I know that I've seen in our world, in our lives, that when we think about sharing the gospel, when we think about proclaiming the good news of Jesus, there is always that element of concern, what if I get asked the hard questions? What if I get asked the crazy question? And as Pastor Brian and I wrestled with how do we address this issue, we really felt that it was necessary to dive into these questions and to talk through some of them. This is building off of a great summer study we had in Confronting Christianity, and that's a great resource for you. You'll get some recommended resources in the email on Monday. But as we're thinking about this, at the core of this, we're really wrestling with how do we talk about Jesus? And so as we begin, one of the things that we felt that it was necessary to start with is we had to address this question, is the Bible trustworthy? Can we trust these words that are written here on these pages? Can we trust this text? As we really think about these questions, everything that we see here in these questions is built off of this assumption that the Bible is trustworthy and true. And so as we start wrestling with this, we first have to ask the question, well, what is the Bible, right? If we're thinking about, is the Bible trustworthy? Let's break this down. Let's get down to a simplest element. What is the Bible? Well, the Bible is indeed God's revealed word to us. It shows us his very character, his identity. As we study the scriptures, we see who he is and who we are supposed to be. Now, even as we think about that very definition of what is the Bible, that leads us to another question. Well, if that's what the Bible is, we have to ask the question, is it trustworthy? Well, as we look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, I think that we'll see that the Bible is indeed trustworthy and worthy of honor, of reverence. Because when we look at the beginning of John, as John's addressing this big picture issue of the Christian faith, talking through how do we know who God is? How do we know this full revelation of God? He doesn't start with pointing out archaeological evidence. He doesn't start with talking through this idea of a textual criticism. No, he begins by pointing to the very character of God. And he points to this very specific issue by saying that Jesus himself is the full revelation of God. And that if we're denying Jesus, if we're denying the Bible, we're denying the other. He's saying if you accept Jesus is who he says he is, you must also accept God's word is what it says it is. Now, I know it's a big topic, and there's a lot of things we're going to address. We're going to do something that's a little different that I hope you'll, you'll jump in with me. We're going to do, after I preach, 
We're going to go much shorter in the sermon, right? I've got a lot fewer notes. You're encouraged by that, I know. But we're going to do a live question and answer segment. Yes, I will answer your questions on stage about this topic, not about anything else, right? Let's focus. But as you'll see on the next slide, if you have questions, you can actually text them to this number. So 843-259-2484. That goes to a Google Voice account, so it's an anonymous message. I have no idea who's sending it, right? You can send messages to that, and you can ask any questions about this topic that you want to ask. There's nothing off limits about this topic. You can ask whatever you want to ask, and we'll answer it. So I want you to put me to the test and send questions in. It would help me. I've got stuff to talk about, but I want to hear what you need to learn, what you are curious about. Now, as we begin, we're going to do as we always do. We're going to look at God's Word. And as we read God's Word together, I would ask if you guys would, would you stand with me as we look at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, as we study this passage of Scripture, Lord, it is our hope and prayer that the light of who Jesus is would be revealed to us. That we would, as John does here, that we would appeal to the very character of Jesus, looking at who he is, and recognizing that he is the very word of God being revealed to us. And Lord, that if he's revealed himself to us through Jesus, that we know we can trust him and his word. So Father, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us. That you would give us the light to see by. That your spirit would move and work in our hearts and minds so that we might be transformed by the good news so that we might listen clearly and hear what the word of the Lord is teaching us today. Father, we are grateful for you. We are thankful for you. And we're thankful that you still speak through your word to your people. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys may be seated. So as we begin here, we've looked at a few verses. And our first point is that Jesus is God's revelation. Jesus himself is God revelation. Look with me at the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So as we start this, what I assume is a rather familiar passage of Scripture, we're confronted by verse 1, which probably sounds pretty, pretty simple, right? That said tongue-in-cheek, right? That's a very complex passage, but it's a familiar verse to us. We have this familiar refrain of in the beginning that immediately echoes us back to Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Where we bring that language back to bear. And I would submit to you as we start that I don't think John is choosing this language on accident. I don't think we're getting to these, these words that he's using without a purpose. You see, I think he's reminding us that our story both here in the scriptures, our individual story, it all begins with creation. You and I were created. That's why we're here today, 
We were created. The story of God begins with him creating, with him hovering over the emptiness and saying, let there be light. Let the world, the universe exist. Even as we get into the New Testament, John is striving to answer a question for the people who are looking at the New Testament going, where does the story begin? And John is driving everything down to the central point. The story begins and ends with who Jesus is and what he has done. And so as he begins there, he's saying the story begins with the creator. Now we have to recognize something as we look at this. And it's saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's pointing to something about Jesus. that He's equating Jesus with this word. That Jesus' story doesn't begin with creation. You see, he's pointing to this element that Jesus is eternal. Jesus has always existed, right? This is a very challenging section of Scripture because it's difficult for us to understand. We live as people in a very finite world where things begin and things end, right? Someday this story will end. This sermon will end. As we consider this, we have to recognize that we start thinking about the truths of God. God is eternal. He's existing outside of time, outside of creation. He's always been there. It's a difficult truth to consider. Creation's merely a point in the timeline in the journey for, for God, for Jesus. He's existed outside of creation. Now here in verse 1, we have this language of the word that's used here. He said the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What does this word mean, right? Well, as you have perhaps surmised, uh, I looked into the Greek, the original languages, and this word is logos in the Greek, and it literally means word, okay? I know you're expecting something significant there. I've got that coming. The truth is, while it translates as word, we don't actually have a great English translation for logos. You see, the reason behind that is that we don't really have a word in the English language that captures the full meaning of what's being said there. You see, when John writes logos, he's not just saying, well, Jesus, the word existed before all time. He's, say, he's capturing something bigger. You see, this is used throughout the scriptures to refer to things like inner thought, like reason and intellect, even speech and communication. Now, why is that significant? Why does that actually have any relevance as we're, relevance as we're parsing through words here? This is significant because John is trying to draw our attention to the work of the word here. You see, beyond his work in creation, his purpose is to reveal who God is to mankind. His purpose is to reveal who God is to mankind. That's the very reason that Jesus was incarnated as a fully man and fully God. He came to this earth to reveal the truth of who God is. Simply take a step back and think about Jesus and his mission, right? How, how does his mission get characterized throughout the Gospels? Well, it's described as essentially this mission of rescue. This mission of coming to his people, telling them about the Father, and the work that the Father is going to do through his death, burial, and resurrection. In the midst of that, he performs miracles. He says some things that are a little challenging sometimes. And he really wrestles with these things, all ultimately pointing to... My father is the one you must know. The way to him is through faith in me. 
Now, John's choosing this usage of the word there with a very specific idea. He's drawing our mind to Jesus. He's letting us focus on Jesus and his work. But he's also building on the work of the Old Testament. You see, he's not just coming to this in a vacuum. We have the entire Old Testament that John is aware of, that he studied, that he understands. And as we look back in the Old Testament, we can see a very similar usage of the word that's used here. So as we look back in the Old Testament, there is a very specific word used within Hebrew to refer to the word. It's debar. You don't care about that. That's not anything relevant for you. But there's a word that has the same context as logos in the Hebrew. Throughout the Old Testament, where is this, verse, this word used? How is it used? Well, when we see God working through creative acts as he's creating the heavens and the earth, that word is there. When we see God working through revelation, when he's speaking to his people, when he's revealing his truth, that word is used. When he's speaking to the prophets and telling them, say this to the people, that word is used. When he's talking to his people about the deliverance he will bring both from this permanent position they have in slavery in Egypt to when he's talking about redeeming them and freeing them from slavery in Babylon and Assyria, this word is used. You see, it's used throughout the Old Testament so that God may express that he is being involved intimately with his creation. What better way for John to draw our attention to Jesus by pointing to this fact that God, when he says this word throughout the scriptures, uses that to signify to his people, I am living and active. I am working in your midst. You are not alone or forgotten. What better word could he use to display who Jesus is and what he's doing than to capture all of those elements in just a single verse? Now, we could talk for days on verse 1, right? And you're probably thinking, please, Lord, don't do that. We've already gotten into Greek and Hebrew. It's going to be a long day. I know. But as we consider this, our passage doesn't end there, right? We've got this initial verse, and he's setting the stage for who Jesus is and what he's doing and this idea of the word coming into play. John continues with a few verses that are really serving to establish Jesus' legitimacy or his bona fides, his ability to represent God, right? He draws us to verse 2. All, he was in the beginning with God. So he's pointing back to this eternal element of God. And these things that he's pointing to here, if they're true, right? If they're true that he's eternal, he's existed for all time, they should lead us to trust Jesus like we trust God. So he's pointing to this idea of being eternal, right? He's existing before the foundation of the earth, before time even began. Jesus is not a created being like you and I, right? He's like his father and he's eternal. Now he says something here that's significant. It points to when he's, the word is with God, when he's pointing to he was with God in the beginning, he's in relationship with God throughout all eternity. Consider this, that, that word with, it's just a word we use, right? I went with someone. But we can also use it in this sense of, hey, are you single? No, I'm with so-and-so, right? Have you heard it used in that context? That's the phrasing that John is using there, that I am with someone that's pointing to this intimate relationship that Jesus has with the Father. So he's pointing to this connection, this relationship that makes them unique. 
without trying to break our brains too much, because I know this is a big concept as we're wrestling with the Trinity. Simply put, this leads us to a basic understanding that there is a deep relationship between the Father and the Son, right? There's a deep, unique relationship, one that we have a faint picture of, but we don't truly understand. Now, it also shows us that Jesus is eternally God. He exists for all time. He's eternal. He's got his unique relationship with the Father, but he's eternally God. John is making it clear that he and God are simultaneously co-equals in this relationship. There's a unique relationship and connection between them. He's saying that Jesus is, in essence, the best perfect representation of who God is in character, in practice, in essence. Now again, this is how we know who God is, right? We study these scriptures, we hear of who Jesus is, we have this revelation of Jesus coming to earth, and we understand that that is a representative of God, an ambassador of the kingdom. Now, we're not going to spend forever in, in these, these verses, but we can see that this is crucial for us to understand what's happening there. Now, John reinforces this in verse 3 because he tells us that Jesus is the creator of the universe. How do we know that? While well, things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Weird language, but it says, if it was made, it came through Jesus. If I can put it down in simple terms, because that's what I need sometimes. This is reinforcing that idea that Jesus is an eternal part of the Trinity. He's a part of this God. He's fully God. He is indeed the one who works in this world. Now, why is John covering all that? Why is he addressing all of that as he begins here? Well, I think he's doing this to show us that Jesus is intended to be God's revelation to his people He's intended to be God's revelation to his people of what? He's showing them the work of the Father. See, this work is the pursuit of his fallen people, his people who are in rebellion, to reconcile us to himself through the Son, the Word God revealed in the flesh, Jesus. And so as John begins with building this appeal out of why we should trust the scriptures, why should we trust this revelation of God? He points to this fact of just look at the character of God. Look at who he is and what he's done. Look at what he's doing to reconcile himself to you. If he's a God who doesn't care for you, why would he send Jesus? If he's a God who doesn't want to be reconciled with you, why would he make a way for reconciliation? He's also pointing out this isn't just a flash in a pan. This is a one-time thing. He's saying, no, look at the grand history of Scripture. Look at all that we know of God and his revelation. And you will see that he is pursuing you relentlessly so that you might be his child. And if that's true, if those are true, then... That means that our next point has to be true, that Jesus revealed God's love. Jesus revealed God's love. Look at verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John, as he continues here, he's not just saying that 
He's saying that life is found in Jesus. He's not really just being poetic. He's, he's speaking literal truth here. We understand as we stand on this side of Revelation, having seen the full width and breadth of the scriptures, we understand that no one, no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. All the things that we see in the Old Testament, the scapegoat, the sacrifices, those were placeholders for the perfect sacrifice it is to be Jesus. And so the very intention of those things to show us is that we cannot go to the Father directly unless someone has made a way for us. You see, Jesus came so that John 3.16 and 3.17 would be true. You're probably familiar with these verses, but they read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's very straightforward that life is only going to be found by coming to Jesus. There is only one way to find life and rest in this life, and that comes through Jesus. Now, John also is connecting this idea of life to light in there. And it seems unusual at first glance. You know, we recognize that, hey, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world later on in John. And we think maybe that's a connection there. And there is, there is. But John's actually doing something that I think is appealing to his listeners in that era, in that time. You know, throughout human history, we have had this belief that light equals good and darkness equals bad, right? When do you, we think of bad things happening in our world? At night. Do you know that actually most crime in America, most violent crime actually happens during the day now? But we don't think about the daytime as a scary place, right? Because it's bright. What could happen? The darkness, when we flip our light off in our room and we make that mad dash across the room to hop in our bed before the boogeyman comes out from under the bed, that is when we're afraid. John's making an appeal to something that's ingrained within human culture, with human tradition. He's saying, light is good. And this light that is coming to the world, he is very good. Just as bad and evil as that darkness might be, he is greater and better than all of that. Now, in the other sense, though, he's saying that Jesus has come to reveal all truth to his people. That when he comes into the world like a bright light coming into a room, you now see things clearly. That if you cut a light on in a pitch black room, what do you see? Everything. You see it all. The light comes to reveal our brokenness and it shows the world's brokenness while also showing us his goodness and his glory. Now we recognize that this light is ultimately not going to be accepted by all people, right? Some people will choose to reject this light. Yet even in this, this gives us hope. We have this hope that the darkness cannot overcome the light. It tells us right here. It says that the darkness has not overcome it. Now this is good news, this is hope for us because it means that the light can always drive away the darkness. That means if you're in sin and despair and you're looking for a way out, the light is there. You just have to grasp hold of it. That means if you're wondering, can I be redeemed? Is there any way out of this darkness? It merely means you call out to the one who is the light of the world and there is a path forward. 
You see, unlike any candle, any flashlight, any other source of light we might find in this world, his light will never waver or flicker. It will always shine forth to illuminate the truth of who we are. Now, just as encouraging as that is, there's also something we have to understand about this last chunk of verse 5. You see, the translation we're using, the ESV, it uses the language overcome it. But it also can be translated as the darkness has not understood it. That it has not understood the light. You see, some are going to see this light of the world shining and they're going to reject him because they don't understand. They don't get who he is. Now, some will just live in abject rebellion saying, I see who he is and I don't want that. Others will simply see this light that's being reflected off of the things of this world. And they'll say, these things must satisfy me. Yet they fail to realize that the light that's coming off of them is merely the light that's coming from Jesus being reflected. They get caught up in chasing pale imitations and shadows of this perfect holy light. And they choose to chase emptiness. The truth of that is, is that if we are to choose either light or darkness, that represents a choice in our life. For those that choose light... Our end result is that we dwell in the light that we have been redeemed, that when we pass from this life into the next, we dwell for all eternity underneath that beautiful light of Jesus and his resurrection body in the heavenly throne. But if we choose darkness, we'll dwell for all eternity in captivity. Separation from God, God ruling over hell as an eternal judge, not a savior. You see, as we look at this, as terrible as these things are, there is indeed hope that God has revealed himself to his people, to his world, through who? Jesus. We know the stories. We have learned them from perhaps the time we were young. Maybe you're just hearing them now for the first time, but here is the truth of the scriptures. Here's the truth of what we've read today. It's that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That he came, the time that he came 2,000 years ago so that he might pay for our debt of sin and shame, so that he might make a way for his people to call him Father. And in that, he has come that one time so that he might redeem his people. But John 3, 16 and 17 points to a second coming. That he's coming in this time to rescue, to save, not to condemn, but he'll return another time to condemn for all eternity those who have not trusted in him. You see, this is what John's pointing to in verse 5. That some have seen this light and said, this brings everything I've been looking for to me. Others have seen this life and said, said it costs too much It doesn't satisfy. It asks too much from me. What should I do? The truth is, we have to make a decision. And be clear about it. Every one of us will make a decision. We will either choose to follow the light or we will choose to live in darkness. The choice is ours. Simply would submit to you and ask that you pursue the Lord. Ask for his wisdom and guidance. 
and ask yourself, are you chasing the light or are you chasing pale shadows of the light? We'll have a time to pray in a few minutes, but I want to transition into the Q&A time. So you'll see up on the screen, this is the message. This is the number you can send the messages to, 843-259-2484. You can send these to them and you can ask any questions you've got. Okay, so I'll try to tackle them live here. So please don't embarrass me by asking really hard questions. Help me out. Ask good ones, but ones that I know, right? So I think a few have come in. So how do we reconcile that God, who is all-knowing, created a sinful human? Did he do that purposefully so that he could bring Jesus to the world? Or is the sin in Adam and Eve actually a surprise to him? Good questions, right? And we're talking about the big picture story of the Bible. So as we look at this and we look at back in Genesis, here's what we're reconciling and thinking through. That when God created humanity, Adam and Eve in particular, they had the ability to choose to not sin. They could have stayed in the garden and worshipped him. They could have stayed there and there would have been no problems. They had the ability when Satan and his little serpent form came up to kind of stomp on them. You know, toss them in a fire like we do with the snakes in the country, right? I've never handled a snake. Don't do that. It's not fun, I guess. But you can, they had the ability to reject sin. They could choose to follow God perfectly in his presence. Now, what happened? They chose to sin. They chose to reject God. They chose to believe the lies of the serpent, and they then sinned. And since that time, we have been broken by this sin. We're guilty of that sin, but we now have the capacity that as we live our lives without this perfect relationship with God, what are we going to do? We're going to choose to sin every time. Our nature is broken. We desire sin. But when God, in his grace and mercy, sent Jesus, he made a way for you and I to be redeemed. For the Holy Spirit to come dwell inside of us once we've repented of our sin and trusted him. And with the Spirit now dwelling inside of us, we've been repaired. We've been made new. We're now alive. We can now, for the first time in our lives, choose God, not sin. Now, here's the thing you're aware of. Are we perfect? No. No. But I'll ask you this, just as an example Look back in your life when you first trusted Jesus, right? Whenever that was. And look at your life now. Are you more like Jesus or less like Jesus? I think most of us say we're more like Jesus now than we were then, right? You don't get to be more like Jesus if you're not saying no to sin. That's an example of God's work, his sanctification in our lives. So did he purposefully create it so that Jesus would come, no, he created it, knowing our willingness to sin, but he created it knowing that ultimately this would have to happen. Was this a part of his grand plan? Was this what he intended when he said, let me create humanity? That wasn't his intention, but we do have free will. We have the ability to make choices, and we live with the consequences of those. But God, in his grace and mercy, sent Jesus to make a way for you and I to dwell in his presence once again. Isn't that good news? So we've got a few more questions. So how does our Holy Bible compare to the Mormon Bible, the Catholic Bible, and do they represent the same gospel as us? Okay, so that's a big question. So as we look at 
these works. So both the Mormon Bible and the Catholic Bible have some different books in there than we do. The Mormon Bible is actually the Book of Mormon is actually a completely different translation, some addition things that Joseph Smith wrote over time. Without getting into an in-depth apologetics question on those, no, they do not represent the same gospel as uh, specifically the Mormon Bible. The Mormon Bible has things in there with the Book of Mormon that would directly contradict the Word of God. They'll tell you that they do not believe that it does, but when you start breaking down the things they believe, and we can get in that nitty-gritty in, in a separate conversation, when you start breaking the things they believe within the Book of Mormon down, it directly contradicts the Word of God. They have a huge problem with the Book of John, actually. As you encounter them, as you talk to them, you start breaking down what John's talking about. Because of some of their beliefs, they have a hard time reconciling that Jesus was fully man and fully God, that he was God, he was with God. Because in their mind, Jesus was just a guy. He was a prophet, he was a good guy, but he didn't come to bring any reconciliation. So, no, that, the Book of Mormon does not represent the same gospel. Mormons are not Christians in that sense because they deny the very essence of what it means to be a Christian, that you would be a little Christ, that you would trust in Jesus. It's a core doctrine there. Now, the Catholic Bible has some different books than we have. There's some additional works that you find in there. Broadly, though, they maintain the same canon we have. So those 66 books we have in our Bible, they have some additions. As we look at the Catholic Church, are they Christians? Yeah, they are. Do they love Jesus? Yeah, they do. Have they gotten some things wrong in what we would say our perspective as Baptists? Yes, we would disagree on some elements. But it is entirely possible to be a Catholic and be a Christian. Those are not mutually exclusive. They work together. The core of what we're pointing to there is that it's ultimately about what the Lord has done in your heart, not resting in tradition or in anything like that. It is resting in this fact that Jesus has moved and worked in your life. You've repented of your sin and you're resting in that, not in the work of the church or anything else. So I know we're getting 30,000 foot view there because you guys are asking good questions. We'll try to go a little more in depth in the follow-up email so you guys can have that. So, there are multiple translations of the Bible. Are all translations trustworthy and accurate? Which ones are the best? So that's a big question. So as you know, there are multiple translations of the Bible. Uh, what most of us are probably pretty familiar with is the King James Version, right? Uh, it, great translation, but it's a little bit challenging to read if you've tried to read it. The reason is that it was written a few hundred years ago. And our language has evolved and changed over time. There are words actually found in the King James Bible, for instance, that we don't use in the English language anymore. Has anyone ever heard of a crimping pen? No, right? We stopped using that in about the 1800s, but that's still present within the King James Version. Now, is there anything wrong with reading the King James? No, not at all, because it is part of how we can see God's Word. But you can imagine if they're using words that we don't use today, it's probably going to be pretty hard to understand, right? And so that leads us to a question. What translation should I choose? Which ones are out there that are good? Well, here's the good news. Most of them are really good. Most of them are really good to work from and to read from. And so you're going to be okay with almost any translation you pick up. The question comes is, what are you looking for? There are two types of translations. There's a word-for-word -word translation, and there's a thought-for-thought -thought translation. Now, what does that mean? Well, word-for-word -word translations, actually the English Standard Version that we use here on Sundays. 
This is what Pastor Brian and I preach from. And that one's a word-for-word translation. So they went to the original language and directly transposed that, translated it into what we have here in our English text. And so you've got the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, some translations like that. Those are great. The only problem with those is that they're sometimes a little harder to read, right? Those are typically written at about a ninth grade reading level, and those are just a little harder for us to wrestle with sometimes. Now, as you kind of move on that sliding scale, you get to thought-for-thought translations. These are going to be what you would get with the NIV, uh, the Christian Standard Bible. Those are going to be kind of more in line with that. Now, as you look at those, those are great translations because they simplify some of the language there, right? They make it a little easier for us to understand. Is there anything wrong with using those? No, not at all. To be fair, I don't think there's any wrong, anything wrong with you reading the Bible, regardless of what translation you're using. But is the NIV helpful? Yeah, it is. I'll even tell you as I'm doing sermon prep and wrestling with this, what I like to do is start with the ESV and read through it and try to wrestle with it and understand it. And then I'll do kind of a sliding scale. Let me go see what the CSB or the NIV says. I even today, as I was wrestling with this, I even went and looked back at the message and said, hey, this is a looser translation, but is there something that helps me explain what's happening here? Because that's the key idea, that we understand God's word. As far as what translations to read, the ones that I recommend, and, and Pastor Brian can chime in if he has anything different. Uh, the English Standard Version, I think, is very, very easy to understand. It's a little bit harder to read sometimes, but it's a direct word-for-word translation. The NIV or the CSB are both good translations. It's okay to dip your toe into the NLT or the message if you need that to help understand some context, but I wouldn't recommend that for your everyday normal reading. You're going to miss a little bit, right? The further you get into thought for thought, that's kind of a paraphrase, and so you lose a little bit of what's actually being said there. And so if you ask me my opinion, I would recommend the ESV. If you're looking for something a little easier, the CSB or the NIV would be great translations for you. At the end of the day, as long as you're reading God's word, the Lord says in his word that the spirit will reveal his truth to us. And so as we're reading the word, he will speak to us. He will move in our lives. He will transform us. So simply put, if you're reading the word, that is good. Now, I want to encourage you to kind of send some questions in if you have some thoughts and questions there. You know, some things that have come up as we wrestle with this is simply another question How do we know the Bible is God's perfect revealed word? How do we know that, right? How do we know that it's true, that it's there? This comes up lots of times because people ask, well, do you have the originals, right? Do you have the original copies that Paul wrote or that John wrote? And the answer is no, we we don't have those, or at least we don't think we have those. We don't know where those are. We don't know what happened to them. And so you might ask, well, is, is what we have as a copy, is it trustworthy? Is it real? Is it true? Well, I would tell you that we have, based upon what we've done in terms of research and archaeological evidence, that we've got about 5,000 manuscripts, 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that were written really within the time frame of Jesus' life. We've got many, many more years of work with the Old Testament. We have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts of the scriptures. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, I want to use an illustration, an example for us from Elisa Childers. She talks about her grandmother's peach cobbler recipe. 
And she says it's the best in the world. And I don't like peaches, so I don't know. So we'll try it one day and we'll figure it out. But she says that this peach cobbler recipe is the best in the world. And she decides to preserve it for all time. She's going to handwrite copies of it. And so she starts writing them for herself and for her sisters. And then one of her sisters calls and says, hey, I would love for my in-laws to have this. So she writes a few extra copies. Another sister says, you know, I've got the copy here, so let me just make a few copies for my family so they'll have it. Oh, and one of my friends from work loves it, so I'll make a copy there, right? By this point, we've got copies upon copies. We've got lots of different things floating around. Let's say we randomly gather them together and pick out four, right? Of that four, we've got one that's a complete listing of all the ingredients. Looks like a peach cobbler recipe, right? We've got another one that's got the ingredients out of order. They're not in the same order as the first one, but... Again, it looks like a peach cobbler recipe, doesn't it? We got one that's got a coffee stain on it, and we can't really make out what's on there, but we see butters in there, and you know what? This butter is misspelled just like this first one, so it's probably the same recipe. And then we've got one that's just got a little fragment that says peaches. But we're thinking, hey, we're talking about a peach cobbler recipe, so that might be from this very same recipe. You see, the point of all of this is that That's how we've worked through studying the original translations of the Bible. We've taken these thousands of manuscripts and compared them to one another. And by doing that, we're able to see that there are some differences in some of them, but those differences are minor. That is, someone misspelled, right? If you've ever seen my handwriting, you know it's terrible. And I'm going to misspell stuff all the time. That's what we see in some copies of the Bible. Others, some of the stories are in different order, right? But they're the same stories. They capture the same thing. So we look at those and go, there's some variation. But as scholars look at this, they really, they find that there are no variations or differences that change the meaning of the text. In fact, most scholars agree that the variations we see are so minor that they discount them. And they recognize that the things we see that might be different between some of these manuscripts They do not impact any essential core Christian doctrine. What does that mean? That means that the text we have here, we can rest assured that this is the text the Lord wanted us to have. We can rest assured that as we look through the generations of scriptures, this is indeed the very word of God he desired us to read, to learn, to grow from. I want to hit one last question as we wrestle with where to go from here. And this question is, did the authors of the Bible believe in its truth? Did the authors of the Bible believe in its truth? And this sounds a little silly to ask, but, you know, as we look back at some of the criticism of scriptures, you know, they'll ask questions like, well, did the gospel writers even know Jesus, right? Did they spend years with him like they said? Going back into the Old Testament, how did Moses know this story of the Pentateuch to write it? How did he know this was really true? Right? It's a fair question to ask because if we're honest, thinking what we know about human nature and the world, we're inclined to be a little bit cynical and go, but did they really believe this? Did they really think it was true and worthy of respect and honor? Did they really believe that what they are writing came from the Lord. Well, you know, as we consider this, I think that we have to wrestle with this basic element. Uh, There's 
a idea that comes from C.S. Lewis. It's the Lewis trilemma. And he essentially asked this question. How can we know that Jesus is who he says he is? How can we know the words we have in here are true and real? He says, just look at the history of the church. He asked this question. He said, look back at the apostles. How many of the apostles died martyrs' deaths? Well, what we believe is about 11 of the 12 died martyrs' deaths. John maybe died as an old man in retirement on the island of Patmos, but we don't know that for sure. There's some evidence that maybe he was martyred as well. So what we're talking about is that this is about a 95% chance that if you wrote these words and you believed in them and you walked with Jesus, you were going to die a violent death. Well, that simply begs the question, does that mean that it's true? And Lewis makes an argument that first and foremost, that if we're looking at this, he said, well, would men die for something they know is a lie? Think about this. If these men are looking at martyrs' death and all that the Roman authorities were asking them is to recant, as we look back in church history, the Roman Empire just simply said, deny your faith and go offer up a couple offerings to the temple gods and things are fine, right? Just say that your God is the same as all the rest of them and you'll live, you're okay. Simple, right? If you knew that the words you wrote were lies, that Jesus was not who he says he was, wouldn't you recant? You'd go burn an offering, right? If you knew it was a lie, what harm is there, right? We have stories of Christians who actually did burn those offerings and the Roman authorities let them go with no punishment. We know there was no harm in offering that from the Roman perspective. So indeed, if you knew that Jesus was a liar, wouldn't you recant? Yes, you would. But they didn't, so maybe what he said is true. Another question he posits is, maybe Jesus was a lunatic, right? He was just this crazy guy who had this big dream and this idea, and so maybe he was a nut, and he just came up with this stuff, and he was really charismatic, and people followed him, right? It sounds like it could be good. We look back at history, and we go, there are some crazy people. Maybe that's true. But I have a hard time believing that these 12 apostles, these hundreds of men and women that were martyred in the early church, who knew Jesus personally, would have followed a lunatic to the grave. And it just, it just seems mind-blowing that perhaps all of these people were crazy too. Right? Like I can understand a few people maybe being under his sway and going, oh, he's a lunatic, of course. You know, whatever. Maybe they find he's really charismatic. Maybe they are lunatics themselves and believe it. But all 12 apostles, plus hundreds of early church Christians that saw Jesus, that walked with him, that knew who he was, it just seems to stretch all belief to say that everybody was crazy, that Jesus was crazy and managed to keep everybody with him. Lewis found those hard to believe too. He said, well, it doesn't make sense that he's a liar. But it also doesn't make sense that he's a lunatic. And he said, there's one thing that I can surmise from this. There's one thing that I can understand. And he says, if he's not a liar, not a lunatic, then he must be the Lord. He must be the Lord. 
No man would willingly die for a lie. No woman would willingly die for a lunatic. But they might be willing to die for the Lord. And so, if you're to ask, did the authors of the Bible believe in its truth? Yes. Yes, I I would say that they did. They believed that it was true because they knew the one that it spoke about. And his name is Jesus. And he is indeed the Lord. And today, you and I have opportunity to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. To sing of his good news of the grace that comes through Jesus. If indeed we will repent of our sin and trust him. And so I would simply ask, as you wrestle with who Jesus is and what he's done. If he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, that must mean that he's the Lord. And if he's the Lord, that demands a response of worship. Here in the next few moments, I'll give us some silent time for us to pray individually to the Lord. That'll lead us in a corporate prayer and our worship team will lead us in worship, rejoicing in this resurrected Savior we serve. My hope and my prayer is that as you sing, as you celebrate His grace, that you're singing and celebrating because you are joined in that resurrection with Him. If you would, would you pray with me? Father, we come to you now desiring to hear from you. Lord, we've heard from the scriptures. We've heard from reason and logic, Lord. We've wrestled with these things in a way that is striving to honor you, Father. And the end result, the question we have to land on is, is the Bible trustworthy? Lord, if I believe in your character, if I believe in who you are, Yes, it must be trustworthy. It must be real and true and living and active and working in our world to transform the hearts and minds of people like you and I. So Father, I would simply pray that you would make the truth of the word of Scripture known to us. That the Spirit would pursue His ministry of convicting us of our sin, of revealing truth to us, Lord, and let us see that you reign on high and that these words we have in front of us aren't just fairy tales, Lord, but they are the story of the world, the story of us. And I would simply ask, Father, that you would convict us of our sin so that we might see how the story truly ends. That we could see you in all your glory and all your grace that we could rejoice with you around the heavenly throne, celebrating your goodness and your mercy, proclaiming for all eternity, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Father, may that be our cry today, that we have found forgiveness and redemption through the Lamb of God, Jesus. May our words and thoughts honor you in this time, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.